You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, David. Hi, Bob. How you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm just back from a, a week in Europe. So, you know, uh, back in Brooklyn where I live. So, uh, you know, not, not the happiest I've ever been. Um, but, uh, but generally well. How about yourself? Can't complain. Before I ask you exactly why you're not the happiest you've ever been, let me introduce this. This is The Right Show. I'm Robert Wright. Uh, the Right Show is available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're David Cleon. Um, you are, among other things, a Bernie bro. You also write. You write for The Nation, uh, and you are the news editor for Jewish Currents. Yeah, and I write for a lot of places, The New Republic and uh, Foreign Policy and Plus One, mm-hmm. Mother Jones, etc. Lots et of places. Yeah. Nothing if not prolific, including on Twitter, which brings us to the reason that I mentioned the Bernie bro thing. One re- one thing we're going to talk about is the alleged Bernie bro problem. Uh, uh, you are an alleged part of the alleged problem. In fact, uh, you were actually featured in a Mike Bloomberg ad or two, a tweet, two a tweet of yours Bloomberg, was. Two Mike Bloomberg ads, in fact. Same tweet? Uh, a few days, same, same tweet? Same, same tweet a few days apart in two Mike Bloomberg As being illustrative of, uh, you know, how horrible Bernie supporters are. That was the, the text or subtext of the Bloomberg ad. So you have, uh, yeah, they, they blurred, um, every, they, these were ads where they went through a series of, you know, uh, horrifying tweets from, from Bernie supporters, uh, or supposed Bernie supporters. Uh, and, um, they blurred the names and the images, but it was definitely my tweet. They highlighted one bit of it and lingered on it a little longer. And you could tell if you know my avatar, which is a, a Tom Tomorrow cartoon of myself with, uh, a kind of rainbow colored background, you could, you could very easily recognize it. Um, well, I would say the tweet itself, you know, your tweets are in, inimitable. The huh. tweet itself, to those of us who know you, uh, suggested the, the authorship. Um, so, so, uh, can let's I, talk- can I just say here to, as an, as an early defense Wait, of before you, you say that, yeah. let me do a, uh, let me do a, um, uh, tell people that, we will also be talking about mm, contemporary politics, other aspects of the presidential race, and maybe some foreign policy stuff you've written and some left foreign policy stuff and some Bernie and Elizabeth Warren foreign policy stuff. All this is to come, but we are going to focus on this Bernie bro issue. Now, what were you going to interject? Oh, I was going to say that I have a distinct memory of um, – so so longtime blogging heads, heads may um, recall that I worked for Bob for, uh, I think, back in – what was it? 2012, 2013, thereabouts. Um, uh, I was an editor for blogging heads and, and, a for a period there, a frequent host, uh, usually on foreign policy topics. Um, and I have a distinct memory when I left Bob for my next media job from there, uh, and, and told him that was going to happen on the phone. Uh, he actually chastised me for my, um, tweeting behavior which at the time by the way you can you can just use the second person you're as if you're speaking to me that's true i'm i'm sorry i'm so used to going on not to chastise you again but what did i chastise you for the the first time you know just i'm sure similar stuff being intemperate and this was probably before i was a bernie bro but maybe i was just rude to some people or overcritical of some people in media uh or you know loud about sometimes i'm sure stuff we agreed with i'd be attacking 
uh, Israel bombing Gaza or something like that. But, um, but I remember you saying that, you know, that's not the best way to engage. And, um, clearly I didn't listen. What's funny is that at the time I had probably a few hundred followers. Now I have over 60,000, which honestly, when you get to that level, it, it starts to get like anything you say can potentially set off reactions well, well, from one or more factions. Well, so right, that's a but, little frightening. But let's talk about how you, how you got to 60,000. I mean, it seems to me, I mean, I do want to do a, a, uh, you know, take a microscopic look at this now infamous tweet, but, um, it seems to me, I mean, one reason, um, this kind of concerns me, the tone of some of your tweets is it transcends the Bernie bro issue. I mean, I do think these things can hurt, uh, can hurt Bernie. I mean, one, one indicator of that is when his opponents start using them in their ads, but, there's a larger problem just having to do with the whole polarization things and, and the, uh, in America. And, the, and the, the basic dynamic is the way to gain stature within your tribe is to say things uh, often hyperbolic, extreme, whatever, that antagonize the other tribe. So there's an incentive for people to, um, to tweet in extreme ways. And, and I think you agree this isn't – this tweet wasn't – a massive aberration. I mean, you're known for intense tweeting and it works. It does build a following. My question is, is it, is it good either for the cause you're serving or the world? I mean, I, I think, um, <laughs> it's I, interesting. I, you don't, you don't ask whether it's good for me because that's the main concern. No, clearly it's good for you, David. <laughs> no, 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 has grown. That, no, no, I'm you, asking, no, because it's more complicated than that. Cause I was about to say like, the the concern that a lot of people in my life have is whether it's good for me, whether whether I'm going to get myself, as we say, canceled, first of all, for one or another of these things. And also, you know, whether the kind of um, addictive cycle that of, of, of tweeting and getting responses and scanning the responses and following up that, you know, or the, the weird conceit that can get in your head when you do have a large following that you're like a really important and influential mm. person, which can be insufferable for, so, you know, it's, it has been good for me in some ways. It's given me a lot of opportunities and connected me to a lot of really great people. It's also sometimes miserable and clearly unhealthy. I mean, most of my complaints about this kind of style of tweeting have been in a different context. It's been, uh, and this is something I don't think you, do much of uh, if any i'm not sure but it has to do with the resistance kind of the voice of the resistance i mean i i think um you know people who either misrepresent things trump says or events a kind of contempt for his followers um i think are are disserving the resistance and actually ultimately helping his cause to the extent that that these kinds of things come to the attention of his followers because they just feed into his whole narrative and uh, you know about the the lying media and, and the contempt of coastal elites for everyday Americans and so on. So, but, but, so that's actually the reason I'm, I'm, um, this is a hobby horse of mine originally, but I think all uh, parallel issues arise in with, with Bernie, right? Does this her Bernie? And as for you, I'm sorry, I don't, uh, wake up very often worrying about you or your career. <laughs> no, I really apologize for that. Um, well, it's just more my mental health, you know, but, but that's fine. You don't need well, to. But, well, but <laughs> the funny thing is the tweets get, and I'm sure this is misleading, but they, they almost give the sense of someone whose mental health is not in danger. I mean, if you keep tweeting like this, I was going to ask you about that, actually. I mean, 
do you like when you get blowback? Um, and maybe we should maybe we should analyze the tweet in question before we get into the uh, uh, the kind of ancillary psychological questions. But yeah, I when, think I think we should start. Okay, with so the, here's the, the tweet. The here's tweet. the tweet. This you can is read after, it. Give it dramatic. Yeah, I, I will. I'll do my best. Yeah, uh, my best David Cleon imitation. <laughs> um, so this was uh, some sometime after Bloomberg. Uh, who uh, had joined the race. And the tweet is, libs, that is liberals, liberals who are flirting with Bloomberg now should be aware that they are going on lists. Next time they pretend to care about racism or sexual harassment or really anything other than money and power, we will remember (laughs) what they were doing right now. And we will remind everybody. No, we you know, will remind I, everyone is what you said. So I, I, I just want to say um, anyone who's only listening to the podcast version of this is missing some terrific. Um, you missed some really tremendous gesticulation but, on my part. Yeah. I'm a veteran gesticulator. <laughs> the um, so now I think I can I think we know each other well enough that I can put the question this way without fear of offending you. <laughs> Do you have. Do you have any idea how much of an asshole you sound like in this tweet? Uh, Yes. Well, for one thing, I've been told by many, many people. Uh, So, uh, yes, I certainly do have an idea. Um, So I'll talk about this tweet because unlike some tweets of mine that have set off firestorms, um, I actually feel okay about this one with a few weeks hindsight. Um, And uh, Clearly, I have some work to do today. (laughs) Clearly. Um, No, I mean, first of all, I think that tweet has been – widely and in many cases willfully misread and i've heard that from many people many reputable people people you respect bob i won't name any but but trust afterwards i'll name some but i don't want to get them in trouble on this um who uh like you know totally understood what i was saying and felt that it was read in bad faith which does speak to your frequent point about tribalism that, you know, people see things differently depending on what side they're on. But I, I think one way that it was commonly misread, and I saw this from people like David Frum or Joya Yaffe, uh, people in that general kind of centrist or, or more neoconservative camp, um, you know, they, they basically said I, I, uh, they accused me of being kind of Stalinist or of having a kind of, um, you know, I sounded like I was going to send people, um, to the gulag and, uh, I was going to do a purge and, 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 you know, uh, or, or that I was attacking thousands of regular people. Now I understand that, uh, a fiery tweet, I, I, I think I wrote at 1 a.m. coming back from a bar, which tells you something, um, <laughs> is, uh, you know, maybe not, uh, you know, it's open to all kinds of uncharitable interpretations and I get that. But, you know, that said, first of all, I never said I was making lists. And as I've said many times since, I never did make a list. Although I, I know that some people subsequently did. Well, um, but- but, but I, I, I see. It how sounds one like of my, you are. But it, it, it sounds like you're like chairman of the list makers or something. I mean, that's sure. one question. Who the hell are you to say if if it's not your list? Who are you speaking for? Uh, so that's that's a fair question, and I'm I'm you know in many ways the lists are metaphorical. I mean, I know that some people have in fact gone ahead and made them literal. But what I was really saying there, uh, I think, is is a much more defensible, if less flowery, 
uh, statement and one that's much more in uh, line with how mainstream politics works. And some of the people calling it out, I think, were very hypocritical for doing so, given who they support or who they are in some cases. So what I was really calling for is something you've called for many times, Bob, in the context of the Iraq war, for instance, which is uh, basic accountability. It's like, you know, when you say something and when you more important, when you do something, when you uh, well, that's when you I, but that's you, when you, you advocate you, a policy that clearly doesn't work out. Yes, there should be accountability. That's a somewhat different from matter from, from from. Yeah, well, it is and it isn't. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, when you back a candidate, you back their policy platform, but you also back, um, you know, certainly what they were running on at the time, whatever they might go on to do. Um, but you also, I think, back the institutions and forces that, that that candidate represents, which in the case of Bloomberg are some pretty egregious ones. So, I mean, I don't want this point to completely dominate our discussion or uh, I'll just, let's just stipulate that this is how I and how, how a lot of people on the left feel. But, you know, there is a, I think, totally defensible uh, proposition, whether, whether, I don't know if you personally agree with it or not, that, um, that for one of the wealthiest people in the world to kind of parachute into a race and use his money in totally unprecedented ways to buy off large swaths of the political class, which fortunately so far doesn't seem to be working out for him in terms of getting votes. But nonetheless, when you see which political operatives and which pundits and so on are willing to basically forsake all of their principles for the sake of a quick payday, you know, if you're just like working in very basic um campaign stuff for Bloomberg, you can make maybe three times what you can make for another candidate. Uh, and that's just for the most basic stuff. Who knows what top level operatives are getting? Uh, like that creates a distorting effect on um, our entire political process that I think is egregious. I also think Bloomberg is an egregious person with some egregious policies on his record. Um, but mostly, you know, the, the plain English sane translation of what I was spouting off at 1 a.m. is I think if you work in democratic politics and you are willing to sell out to this uh, unprecedented level of, of, of money in politics and forego your principles on things like stop and frisk or Bloomberg's well-documented uh, history of, of sexual harassment, NDAs and so on, um, then uh, you should be remembered it, by people who follow politics for doing that. They should remember that that's a choice you made. Okay. And that's let all say, I was saying. Let me say a couple of things uh, before I challenge uh, your your claim that that's all you were saying, uh, at, at least to some extent. Um, so first of all, on the, on the Iraq war issue, I mean, I've never said, like, let's make lists. But it's true that I think it shouldn't be the case that if you, you look around at the main foreign policy think tanks, and, you know, most of the people you see are people who advocated going to war with Iraq. And for that matter, you look at uh, our, our most important, some of our most important journalistic institutions, and they are uh, run by people who, in some cases, not only uh, advocated the invasion in a heartfelt way, but did flawed reporting that helped us get into the, the war. I, and, and, I, and I can't imagine what major American magazine you might be referring to. I about, have but. I have no idea myself. So I guess uh, we're both. Uh, kind of puzzled, but, uh, but let's move on. The, um, the, the, uh, but, um, I, I will say, I, I think the, the list, what it triggered in my mind was the Hollywood blacklist. And, and here right. I would say, in, in your defense, kind of in your defense, the analogy is not precise. I mean, what's most outrageous about the Hollywood blacklist is that, um, 
what is ostensibly an ideologically kind of neutral zone, it's just entertainment, would would create as a filtering device, you know, something ideological. I mean, not that that doesn't happen by virtue of the very workings of the establishment, right? But in this case, it was very explicit. People of a particular uh, ideology are never going to work again. And and that was... And not just in entertainment, but across any number right, of right, government right, and anything. I mean, their lives were destroyed in many cases. And they these were people, for, first of all, We'll get into this in more detail, but I, I, as you'll often see on Twitter, reject equivalences between left and right. So in my mind, like there is a difference between doing this to people advocating for the left and people on the right. I understand not everyone's going to see it that no, way. No, of course. I but... mean, that's that's <laughs> let's pause on that because that's so fundamental. I mean, like, what do you mean by that? I mean, I I understand if what you're saying here is is, um, you know, the way these things work. Um, if you come out full-throatedly for Bloomberg, chances are that next time Jacobin's looking for somebody to write a piece, you're, you're not going <laughs> to spring to mind. I mean, that's just a reality. Well, but- or to be, or to be a little more concrete, I mean, I think that the next time, and maybe it'll be Bernie, or maybe it'll be AOC down the line, or whatever it is. I mean, keep, one reason I reject the false equivalence is because the left is not exactly used to having any power in this country. I and mean, the only reason this scares people is because there's the slightest glimmer that the left might have power for the first time in anyone's memory and uh in the US. And um I think that, you know, yeah, I, I don't expect that um Bernie Sanders is going to be hiring a lot of people who work for Bloomberg. Um I don't think he should. Which actually brings me to one more point that that I want to make uh in my own defense, the hypocrisy point of of the people attacking me. These lists, whether they're explicitly spelled out or not, are incredibly normal in politics across all establishment politics in Democratic side, Republican side, centrist, liberals, whatever it is. Two examples that got brought up a lot um, that that I'll bring up here are um, one is that it's been reported many times in mainstream outlets that Hillary Clinton keeps enemies lists. And these aren't just enemies lists of like, you know, uh, Rush Limbaugh or people like that who've attacked her. What they really are like. If you were a Democratic uh, senator and you endorsed Obama over Hillary in 2008, you went on one of her lists. And, like, I think Claire McCaskill did this. And then it took years of basically groveling before the Clintons to but get do you think that's that a list. good thing? Do you, do, you, do you applaud her for that? No, but mostly because I don't like Hillary Clinton. And, See, that's and what I mean, David. This for. is just not. But, but I'm just saying that. doesn't I seem think, to me that I you're think that's managing. normal. I think that's normal. Also, the only principle there was loyalty to her personally. It wasn't any larger principle. So I don't really like that. No, but, but I guess but what for, I... for instance, for instance, let me clarify. Let's say Bernie wins. Um, I think, I hope that if Bernie wins, um, he would staff up his White House with, uh, a large number of people who work for, in particular, Elizabeth Warren's campaign, but probably some other campaigns as well. And, uh, I don't think that someone having you know, chosen to work for Warren instead of Bernie Sanders or to have endorsed Warren instead of Bernie Sanders is the sort of thing that should get you put on um, a list as far as Bernie's administration. But somebody else might disagree with you. And, 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 and what kind of bothers me is I really think that you think that people who disagree with you along these dimensions are just bad people. 
No, it depends what they disagree with me on and how strenuously they disagree. Right, but but um, beyond a certain point, I mean, I guess we all have a point. We all, I mean, you, you know, I mean, but, you, but, you, I, Bob, I, I know that although some of them you probably still talk to or consider friends or have on the show, I know that there are people we won't name who played a major role in selling the Iraq War, for instance, who you basically consider beyond the pale. Like, uh, well, ideologically, yes, but I don't think. They're, I, I think they're objectively wrong, but I don't think they're bad people. I think a, 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 a bedrock article of faith of mine is that almost all people manage to convince themselves they're doing good. And, and, and moreover, they are, they're led to their perspectives by intelligible, in principle, causal forces such that if I'd been born in their shoes with their genes, I'd probably be them. Okay. Well, so it's, it's funny because when we talk about, um, U.S. foreign policy in particular, it often is people who, who grew up very similar to me, uh, in, in, in a well, yeah, variety but, but, of ways. But, but, but not with your genes and not with your environment. I mean, one of the. No, 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 like really close. I mean, no, no, but it's psychologists, distinct, but. psychologists have learned that even among siblings who grow up in the same house, household, there's important influence lies in something called non-shared environment. Just for example, it's like you may have an older brother, but he doesn't have one. That matters. You know, uh, he has sure. different friends at school, blah, 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 blah. These things, uh, we don't need to get into no, no, determinism. I, 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 I understand but, what you're saying and but, I accept what you're saying. I, I don't, I mean, I don't doubt we could get really philosophical in a field here, which I know you probably also like to do sometimes, but I don't doubt as a, as a, I don't doubt that most people, for instance, most of the intellectuals who back the Iraq war, um, think of themselves as good people and probably are in their personal lives, good people. Um, and some of them, I think, uh, from what I know or from what I've encountered are, are, pleasant people to be around. Some of them are not at all. We don't need to name any names. But, um, but uh, you know, and, and obviously the same goes for people who agree with me, that, that some of them are, are awful and some of them are, are very nice and there's a whole range. Um, I don't, I do believe some people are truly terrible and I'm not going to rattle off examples either, although I will say that I think the Trump administration is particularly um, prone to attracting such such types. Um, some people, I think, uh, just, just, um, you know, need to be driven from the public sphere. Uh, I probably have a more expansive idea of who those people might be. I'm sure I do than, than you do. Um, but also, you know, I only have so much power to drive anyone from the public sphere. Uh, sphere. I mean, we can all uh, express our, our opprobrium. We can insult people. We can trade insults, whatever. But it, it's uh, at the end of the day, like, you know, most of that is, is abstract. Um, we probably should at some point get into you know, having, having worked at blogging heads and, and had a responsibility when I worked at blogging heads to try to set up, um, good faith discussions between people who disagree. I have some feedback actually, you know, I, I feel like I, because, well, let me, let me start positively. Okay, okay but first, yeah. wait, 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 before you do that, I want to, I want to, I want to <laughs> stick for a second on the, Are you censoring yeah. me and now, should Bob? we, and should we run out of time, uh, <laughs> that will be such a shame, but let me first spend uh, some more time because th- this very issue of like, I, I want to, to, to revisit a, a specific part of this tweet in the context of the question of whether you are kind of Monachaean and convince yourself that people who disagree with you about matters of political consequence are just bad people or, 
or kind of um, read into their motivations bad motivations that may not be warranted. Now, here's let, let's read this again. You you say about liberals who who are flirting with Bloomberg. You you, you say. Next time they pretend to care about racism or sexual harassment or really anything other than money or power, money and power, we will remember what they were doing right now. We remind every, everyone. So you really believe that you can infer from the fact that any liberal in the world who supports uh, Bloomberg, you can you can infer from their support of Bloomberg that they don't care a bit about racism or sexual harassment and, in fact – all they care about is money and power. That's really a valid inference. You can't, um. <laughs> you can't imagine somebody who just wants to beat Trump at all costs and thinks Bloomberg's the guy who will do it, notwithstanding his imperfections. Well, so I think another distinction, which the tweet doesn't explicitly draw and which I clarified in, in follow ups is I'm, I'm, I'm really not talking about any random person who is tempted to vote for Bloomberg. And I've met such people. No, you're talking um, about liberals who are flirting with Bloomberg. Yeah, but I should have been in the tweet and I, subsequently clarified, and I will clarify on here, more specific. I'm talking about insiders. I'm talking about political officials. I'm talking about pundits who, who write for or well, even there, publications can't you or imagine? TV. And I'm talking about political strategists and consultants who take money for their services. I'm not I'm not talking about random voters. But can't uh, you people, imagine you know. more benign motivation than you're attributing to them? There are people who, I mean, I, I, there, I, it's not that easy for me to think of people I wouldn't vote for over Trump. And if I were convinced that they alone in the Democratic Party can do it, or they are way better positioned to do it than others in the Democratic Party, I can imagine choosing them instead of the person I prefer ideologically. It wouldn't mean I embrace uh, everyone, everything about them. And I got to admit, for me, Bloomberg would be the most severe test in the entire field. <laughs> well, I'm glad but, we agree but, on that. But still, you see, well, so in fact, point, I'll, I'll right? draw, as we as we go into a very exciting Super Tuesday, which we're recording this on, and we don't know what the results will be yet. But let's let's record for posterity where things are right now, and then I'll get back to Bloomberg. Um, you know, a few days ago, it looked like Bernie Sanders was very likely to be the plurality winner of votes and delegates nationwide. If you looked at betting markets at Nate Silver and most mainstream political analysis, everyone was kind of coming around to that view and panicking because mainstream uh, analysts tend not to like Bernie or his movement. Uh, and people who were more like me were obviously very excited. Um, you know, then uh, Biden, I think people expected him to win South Carolina, but he won it by a bigger than expected margin and uh got a lot of good press out of that and then literally just in in the last what 48 hours um Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg uh have both dropped out and endorsed Biden and Beto O'Rourke has also endorsed Biden and from reporting it seems pretty clear that while Obama probably isn't going to publicly step out and do this he has kind of signaled within democratic circles that this is the way things need to go um, and so, you know, on the old poli-sci phrase, the party decides, the party seems to have abruptly decided for Biden. And if you look at um, uh, the, the betting markets and the 538 forecast and so on now, you can see Biden surging at an almost unprecedented rate at Bernie's yeah. expense. So that's the state of play right now. And it looks like states could break down in any number of ways between those two candidates, maybe Warren, who's been trailing badly behind actually Klobuchar and, and uh, Buttigieg could get a boost from them leaving. Uh, that's where things are now. I'm going to hold off from making predictions. No, I think what we could say, so we should, we should, we should, we should emphasize 
it's almost five o'clock on Super Tuesday. We don't know anything for sure. It seems safe to say that the two leaders in the delegate count at the end of today will be Bernie and Biden. Yeah, I feel very confident that that will be true. Um, and, and that's what we can assume going forward. And, the, and that Bernie will still have a chance, even though, again, he is now the, the betting markets. Last time I checked, had Biden with appreciably over a 50 percent chance, Bernie around 30, 35. But let's assume. Yeah. I mean, because I, the truth I, is, look, Biden. You know, Biden, you know, there will be debates and he's one major senior moment away from from uh, from trouble. You know, 100%. And, I think and, Look, I'm for all for all I'm a, a known and died in the wool Bernie bro. Um, I try to be pretty empirical and fair minded. One reason I've believed in Bernie uh, for the last five years, basically, is that um well, last time around, I, I think I did in 2016, I saw him as more of a. Net, very necessary protest candidate against the Clintons and the establishment. Um, this time around, but you know, I, I expected her to win the nomination and I did, as I've said a million times, vote for her in the general. Um, this time around though, and I've felt this way, you know, for the past few years now, I've really thought Bernie had a path and I still think Bernie has a path. Um, and I have watched, um, in this case, I think the mainstream view has come around to where people like me are, uh, not happily, but I think they I don't, have, You mean that he actually uh, has a good chance of beating Trump? Well, sure, but first of getting the nomination. Oh. I think, I think that oh, until... Oh, to the nomination. Well, that was conventional wisdom uh, until the South Carolina primary, yeah. No, but it, it only started being conventional wisdom maybe a two or weeks three earlier, months yeah. ago. Yeah. yeah. I've believed that for a long time. So, okay. you know, that's, that's just to say that, you know, if I... I People like me, I think, I mean, there is a strain of Bernie supporter online. You know, you know, we, we said I have a reputation as a Bernie asshole, Bernie bro online, but the truth is, to the extent I can assess my own reputation, I actually think that in the grand spectrum of Twitter wars, I'm seen as a relatively moderate Bernie supporter, if not least by Bernie the hardcore supporters themselves. Um, for instance, I have not been tweeting snakes at Elizabeth Warren and in fact have been defending her character and good name and saying things like, uh, my friend Sam Adler Bell also has said and written for The Intercept and other places that, um, you know, if, if, if Warren were doing better than Bernie, I might well be supporting her right now. But the reality is he has built a broader base than her and a more diverse base and a more working class and she has not really broken out of I mean, I, I tweeted just today that because um, there was this New York Times article by by Shane Goldbacher about her, um, you know, her sort of not getting beyond the professional kind of Whole Foods NPR demographic. And I said that um, in my world, in, you know, kind of gentrifying Brooklyn and, and in the northwest suburbs of D.C. where I grew up, in my world, everyone I know, almost everyone I know supports um, either Warren or Sanders. But in the real world, if you look at the polls, Sanders has way, way more support than her. So, mm-hmm. like, it's it's the Warren supporters who live in a bubble. And I say this with love to the many Warren supporters in my life. Um, but Sanders has built something. And I think he's built the, uh, you know, I agree with the nation's endorsement from a few days ago, which was not guaranteed. I know they were considering Warren for a long time, too. Hmm. And there were internal debates. But in the end, they endorse not only Sanders, but Sanders and his movement. And, you know, this is, the, I think I'm heavily paraphrasing here, but this is the best chance in any of our lifetimes to elect someone with, who is genuinely unapologetically on the left and has like an actual shot. 
Now, I know some people disagree he has an actual shot against Trump, which is kind of a separate debate, but the polls show he does. Uh, and the polls have been pretty accurate about everything else. Um, they certainly show he has a better chance than Warren or than most of the people who've dropped out. I mean, between him and Biden, it's more yeah, debatable. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the skepticism is about how much these kinds of polls tell you at this point. Um, yeah, I, I mean, personally think he's better positioned to beat Trump than a lot of people think. I do think if there's a single thing that's a poison pill, and he could neutralize this if he shifted his position not that dramatically, but I think the poison the poison is is the attack ad that says accurately at this point he will take away the private health insurance that you're comfortable with and that your employer provides. Uh, and force you to trade it for an untested government program. I just think that's a killer. And if he even said, um, if he even said it could arrange for some journalist to ask him, you know, would you be totally against, uh, just do, uh, allowing, uh, what people do with Medicare now, which is by supplementary insurance if they're not happy with, with, with the coverage. And if he just said, sure, that would demonstrate, first of all, it would partly, uh, redress people's concerns on that issue, but it would also demonstrate a little bit of pragmatic flexibility that, that I think people assume he doesn't have and would help in other areas as well. But anyway, that's well, my- Well, here's, here's where I make a mandatory disclaimer that I don't. Uh, speak for the Bernie campaign have have never taken talking points directly from the campaign. I'm not one of those like surrogates disguised as a journalist. I am an independent journalist whose work I like to think uh, you know can be judged on its own merits and um, and I am openly pro Bernie because I believe journalists uh, or at least some journalists I believe uh, you know should be open about their biases and, and preferences and that it makes us more and not less trustworthy which is a whole other debate too but but suffice to say i'm not speaking for the bernie campaign here and anything i might say about his position on insurance uh in no way okay reflects I, disclaimer register it doesn't reflect any inside knowledge either about okay. what they might be thinking i mean what i do know because anyone who follows and analyzes politics knows this is bernie's not going to pass medicare for all Certainly not in his well, first years in office. Said, right. Yeah. Uh, he's not. Um, so the way I look at Medicare for All, and I understand some Bernie people really do believe or. But that have, doesn't help with that attack ad, by the no, way. The no, no, it doesn't. Attack. And I, I, I look, if that attack ad gets made hypothetically, and it probably will, then I, I suspect the campaign has thought or will think through its responses. I, I can say that Faz Shakir, who's running the campaign, is a really he's, smart guy. I, I like who, him a lot. Who came up in, um, actually a better era of the Center for American Progress and in Harry yes, Reid's office. And, uh, yeah, well, when we get to dust, we can talk all about that. That'll be fun. But, um, you know, there are some really smart and pragmatic people around Bernie who, um, I think, uh, and, and Bernie himself is no dummy. I mean, he is out no, and he never, gets, he and never me, gets credit for this, but he's, although Matt Iglesias, I think has done a very good job of, uh, making the kind of pragmatic, pragmatic, progressives case for Bernie for a while now, but he's actually had like a really impressive political career. I mean, if you, if you bought that Pete Buttigieg's uh, two terms running a, a small college town um, in a not particularly distinguished way, qualified him for higher office, uh, then in addition to his years in the house and Senate and where he has real accomplishments that he often gets sold short on, uh, including one, I, I know you'll agree on, uh, the, um, Yemen resolution, mm-hmm. uh, in addition to, to all of that, um, you know, he was actually one of the best mayors in the country of the small, but lively college town that, uh, 
I know you run in a live in a college town yourself, so you may have thoughts about this. Uh, but that he ran for for most of the Reagan era, I think almost exactly contemporaneous with the Reagan era, um, which he turned into the one of the most livable cities in the country. And he, you know, obviously running the the country is completely different and the empire, but but it he did in that role where he came in as an out of nowhere socialist. Um, He was actually known as a pretty pragmatic deal maker. Let me say one other favorable thing about him because it's the flip side of what I just said, which is, you know, I just alluded to a perceived rigidity on his part that I think it would be good to, to dispel. But I will say that, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the stances that lead him to be perceived that way, are a product of his earnestness, his authenticity, the fact that he really cares about these policies, uh, and is, is willing to, to, uh, you know, live or die by them. And that is, I think, an underrated asset that he has. I think people, so, I think not everyone appreciates the extent to which Trump got support in 2016 from people who just were sick of fake politicians. And so when Trump would say these outrageous things, and we're like, wow, won't this kill his campaign? Politicians don't say stuff like that. Well, that was a feature, not a bug for people who wanted him to not be a politician. They took it as a kind of authenticity, even though that's personally not the way I would interpret it. And I think Bernie comes off as if nothing else, authentic. And I think people uh, underestimate how valuable that would be and even the extent to which it might uh, allow him to make some inroads on uh, Trump's, you know, white working class support. Yeah, I think um, it's I think it's valuable in two different but fully complementary ways. One is that that he could, um, to the extent swing voters exist and they do, however small in number, and uh, you know the 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 legendary but well not the the real Obama Trump voter uh, who we would hope would be an Obama Trump Sanders voter. Uh, I think you're absolutely right in your diagnosis that he conveys authenticity and that he'll be able to authentically say, for instance, you know, Trump said he was going to bring jobs back to your steel town. He didn't. Instead, he enriched his cronies. I mean, that'll be the message, stuff like that. Um, but also, uh, and this I, I have a lot of up close, you know, um, exposure to, uh, no other candidate in my lifetime, except for Obama in 08, and then he didn't do anything with it as president, has ever excited young people in the way that Bernie does. Right. And I have I have heard that publicly on Twitter um, from no less of an authority than Tommy Vitor of Pod Save America, uh, mm-hmm. who, of course, worked in Obama's comms team and is probably, give or take, my age. Uh, and, you know, those guys, I've noticed the, the, the Pod Save bros, John Lovett and Dan Pfeiffer and uh, John Favreau have been noticeably gentler on Bernie and friendlier to him than a lot of Democratic establishment mm-hmm. voices are. And I basically well, got of course, it was it was looking Rhodes also. It, it was for a while looking like he might be the actual president. Yeah, I but, guess but, that the kinds of people who served in the Obama administration are very good at being nice to people who might well be president. Sure. I mean, I don't want to be too well, cynical. Look, well, they, they had their ideologies, but these guys are players, right? These they, guys they, are Washington they players are, first I'm, and well, 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 actually, hold on. I'm going to I'm going to put a correction there. First of all, they're not Washington. They live in L.A. They've gone totally Hollywood. No, but, but, but the ones but, who were but, in the Obama administration, 
Yeah, okay, yeah. Well, but, they, it's true. They started. Me, they started a company. They started a media company. They started a media Obama, company. They're so they're they're. And my guess is that I, I think it's been incredibly lucrative for them. So my guess is that's probably what they want to keep doing. They want to stay relevant to their audience, which gives them a different set of incentives than mm-hmm. um, than a lot of people in Washington. But actually, I would I would push back on you, and I don't want to overly defend them. I have many criticisms of the PodSafe guys, but um, which we don't need to get into. But I do want to say that. Um, you know, these are guys who got into politics, uh, as idealistic, you know, 20 somethings working on what was then in 2008, the most exciting campaign of anyone's lifetime. Um, and they really believed in Barack Obama and they really believed in the movement he built, you know, you, these giant crowds of diverse young people, he'd turn out in every place in the country. That was, that was, you know, the magic for them. And they helped craft the message that excited that. So, you know, actually, when you look at the Washington political class and the, the, the kind of usual suspects of that class, the people you see on cable news all the time, um, they despise Bernie and they despise Bernie, um, four years ago, two years ago, one year ago, and they despise Bernie right now. They, despite the fact that there was obvious gathering momentum. And the reason they despise him, and there are many, but I think the central one is that he wants to take money out of politics. He wants to crack down on lobbying and the kind of way that business as usual works in Washington, which is threatening to the, anyone who works in the Dem establishment. But the PodSafe guys don't need to worry about that because they run a popular podcast. What they can recognize, meanwhile, is that... um is that this is real, that he really does excite young yeah. people in an authentic mm-hmm. way, and they can appreciate that. And Yeah. Yeah. So, and having um, been an Obama supporter in 08 when I was um, 24, uh, I just turned 36, um, I recognize it too. But I also think that what's happening with Bernie is more exciting in a certain respect because uh, he's getting by less on his natural charisma and obviously the – well, he would be the first to start – uh, history making Jewish president that, that hasn't generated, you know, a thousandth of the excitement that Obama's historic achievement was at the time. Um, but I think really because he would excite a explicitly democratic socialist movement that would transform the country in ways that my well, I mean, also just excited. in American history. Nothing Black like it is Jewish. Happened. I mean, it's just, you know, so it's, it's, sure, it's, sure. I, I mean, I don't want to get into that at great but, length, but, although I will say that Jewish Currents, where I work, has um, done a series of articles, one by me, one by Joshua Leifer, maybe two by Joshua Leifer, and one by Bernie Sanders himself that, um, that, you know, address Bernie's Jewishness from various angles, and it is a very rich topic, but, yeah. uh, but we'll table that. So now. is Jewish Currents the new, I mean, it's, it's, to the left, clearly, given the fact that you're working there, <laughs> is is it is it to some extent do it? I mean, is it? I, I don't pay that much attention to this part of the media landscape. But didn't the forward used to be uh, appreciably further left than it is? Uh, I would say so. Yeah. So, I mean, the, so is the, it occupying some of that? Is Jewish currents occupying some of that territory? Um, yeah, you could you could say that. I don't want to put this out as an official message on behalf of the staff, oh, yeah. but but you okay. could say that. Um, that Jewish currents, uh, you know, it's not as old as the foreword, but it's actually very old. It dates to 1946 and it was founded by members of the Communist Party, which if you wanted to call them Stalinists, you wouldn't be entirely off base. A few years later, it, it moved to something a little more, um, democratic than that, let's say. Um, but for many years, it was, um, you know, it, it had a, a following and an ideological core in the, you know, roots of early 20th century 
Yiddish socialism, which is also the world that gave us the actually on that spectrum, somewhat more moderate forward. And also in a sense, the world that produced Bernie Sanders. Um, but it got a revival with um, an influx of money and then another greater influx of money very recently, uh, just in the last two years and in all millennial staff that's come on. Well, actually, we just hired our first new non-millennial staffer, Peter Beinart, who I'm sure you're familiar oh, with. Oh, really? Yes, he just where, came where on. Is it, where is it based? In, in New York? Or He's based in New York, although uh-huh. some of the staffers uh, live in uh, Chicago and Minneapolis, but most of us are in New York. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a brilliant team. Um, and uh, we, it definitely feels like in the last uh, six months or so, we've really had a moment. Um, and we're just getting Good. started. So, uh, that's, that's a bit of a digression, but Peter, yeah, it was just announced, I guess, like a month so ago. So he'll be, he'll, that means he'll be writing for you? Yeah, mostly he'll writing. Have... His title mm-hmm. is editor at large and he mm-hmm. still retains, uh, roles at the Atlantic and at, um, CUNY journalism at CUNY, school. Yeah. But, um, but he left the foreword for us, which, okay. um, you can read that, into that's... that whatever you want. Or honestly, yeah. you should have Peter on to talk about this in more detail. I'm sure that would be I great. may well. Yeah. The um so uh before we I th- I think you wanted to talk about uh some foreign policy stuff including pieces you've written about uh foreign policy with respect to both Bernie and and Elizabeth Warren. First I want to say one more thing about about um Bernie's electability. And you know the conventional wisdom is definitely that he'd have trouble against Trump. If you look at the in the betting markets, if you compare if you look at both the, his uh, the odds given him with respect to getting the nomination and his odds of beating Trump, uh, or, or, or his odds of being the next, um, his, his, what is his it? Anyway, you, you can infer, you can infer the comparison between him and Biden, uh, on electability and people see a really stark difference. And I don't, I, I just would say if you imagine the two of them on a debate stage against Trump, Bernie might have his issues, uh, but with Biden, I think there's the real danger. And I'm not among those who think he has like dementia. I just think he's a 77 year old guy whose, whose brain is working about as well as a lot of 77 year old guys' brains work, which is like not all that terrifically, probably better than mine will be, but, but whatever. But I do think there's a real danger of people saying, wow, I've been spending the next last four years assuming that Trump was kind of out of it and that you don't really want a guy like this running the the government. But, you know, it's not clear that there's a really sharp contrast here. I mean, it depends. Biden has his good nights and his bad nights. But I can I can see that becoming a significant problem in a way it definitely won't with with, with Bernie. I yeah, mean, I mean, remarkably, although Bernie is 78 and he did suffer a heart attack last fall, um he, uh, his mind seems to be in precisely the same condition it's been his entire life. Uh, unlike a lot of politicians, you can go back and watch a speech of his from any era and, uh, he sounds exactly the same. He's on exactly the same message. Um, but not because he, you know, doesn't think about anything else. Well, maybe, but he, um, like, you know, he, he, by all accounts is, uh, is operating at a really high level right now. It's not, totally clear to me that Biden is, or for that matter, that the president is, um, electability is, as many others have said, uh, uh, you know, a kind of a messy thing for regular people to try to measure. I mean, it, it, it becomes self-fulfilling. Like 
uh, people in, in the political class will tell you that someone's electable and then that, you know, the, the public hears that and thinks it must be true. Uh, it, you know, but the truth is, um, we, uh, there are reasons to doubt Biden's electability that you've brought up. He, he does seem like he's in a fragile state. He hasn't demonstrated really any, uh, knack for campaigning in this or for that matter in his previous presidential bids when he was much younger, which were complete disasters. And, um, well, he does retail politics well because he's likable and, you know, but in theory, uh, I mean, my, my sense when, is when that, he's not slipping up and saying things that aren't true or something. My sense is that Biden, the key thing he has going for him is that he was vice president for eight years in a generally popular administration and there's a comfort level with him. I mean, people kind of know what to expect. And even if he is, um, fading fast, I think, you know, we kind of know what administration we'll get. And what we know the general shape of things. Um, and I think that will be reassuring to a lot of people and it might well be what gets him the nomination. It might well get him the presidency. But I also think, and you've identified them beautifully, that, um, there are major risks with him. There are obviously major risks with Sanders, but there are major upsides too. Uh, the youth movement that I think he can excite could be game changing. Um, the authenticity we talked about could be game changing. Uh, but also, uh, you know, I, I believe in what he stands for. And, uh, actually this will make a good segue. I also believe what he stands, believe in what he stands for on foreign policy. And what's more, I'm pretty sure you do too. Um, oh yeah. No, if I could, if I could just magically put any candidate in the White House and didn't have to worry about electability, I would definitely put Bernie there because it's not that I'm as far left as he is on domestic policy, but uh, I put a lot of emphasis on foreign policy, and I think, you know, by my ideological lights, he is by far the best bet yeah, in, so let's, in, the, in, the, in the crowd. So let's talk about that. And I'm going to, after after a somewhat contentious um, first act, I, I actually, um, I'm going to butter you up a little here, Bob, because I'm going I'm I'm to express some, uh, some uh, gratitude. Um, because, you know, you, you took me under your wing and you, you gave me what in a sense was my first gig in media. Um, however unconventional it was. And a big part of that job was, um, you know, listening to long and intelligent conversations between all kinds of people. And uh, honestly, I, I feel like I, I was inevitably going to get on Twitter anyway, but the way I kind of got on Twitter was to, better monitor the the discourse every day, see who was arguing about what with whom. It became an essential part of the job. And one major element of that, since you specifically... Oh so you mean it was within my power to save Twitter from you? To save I could have kept you from ever showing up? This is all your fault, Bob, if is I, really what I'm saying. If I had fired you... If you had fired me, well, if you hadn't hired me in the first place. But, you know, in a, to get more specific and granular about this, um, because you brought me on specifically to work on the Worldwise series, which I guess isn't running anymore, among other things. So, uh, you know, I was constantly, like, following mm-hmm. international news. And um, my my view of the world was actually still kind of forming back then in some ways. And the constant exposure to uh, the range of perspectives that you've always described, I think, well, as progressive realist, which was such a... Um, a fringe view in Washington. I mean, no one had even coined the blob yet. No one had, had talked about, you know, why don't we have a real left foreign policy apparatus? Um, but on the other hand, if you, you know, you had as 
a, a regular show hosted that I edited sometimes, Foreign Entanglements, by Matt Dust and Rob Farley. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt Dust is now Bernie's foreign policy advisor, and if I get my way, will be, you know, I don't know, national security no, advisor security. or something <laughs> like that. And Rob Farley uh, is Matt's close friend and mentor, who I would not be at all surprised. Rob is Matt's mentor? Yeah, Rob is uh, a bit older than Matt, and uh, well, it's also did, I Matt, think, did Matt study under him or anything? Yeah, Matt, I think also came late to uh, you know he, he hmm. didn't really get his degree, as I recount in my profile. We'll discuss until his early thirties. Um, so yeah, but Rob was also like at his wedding and stuff. I mean, they're really close, mm-hmm. and um, and and I think Farley is probably the you know, the sort of person you might expect to see uh, working in a Sanders administration. I'm just guessing here. Uh, and so are lots of other I, people. I sometimes wonder how close he is to Matt ideologically. I'm not convinced, that, that, but maybe I'm wrong. But well, anyway, you know, the, the funny thing is, at the time when you talked about progressive realism, it often seemed like this very out there view. It was so outside the D.C. mainstream. Um, a lot has happened to change that. And I actually think that among the multiple hats I wear, you know, Twitter asshole, Bernie champion, uh, Jewish currents editor, whatever. Another one is, uh, and, and, and maybe the one I think I've done my, my best work in, in the last two years, uh, certainly the last year, uh, is a kind of reported chronicling of the emergence of exactly what you were always talking about. That, um, that, that progressive realist movement. I mean, it doesn't exactly call itself that, but, or, or left foreign policy or just, you know, kind of shaking off the blob and a series of articles I've written primarily for the nation. So if you go back a little over a year, you would have, um, I reviewed Ben Rhodes's memoir, uh, and mm-hmm. ended up interviewing him for that. And you can read both the review. But, and the, By the way, speaking of Tommy Veter, the, the podcast they do pod save the world, yeah. Ben Rhodes and Tommy Veter do is, you know, it's, it's pretty good as, yeah. you know, as mainstream. I mean, there's an irony, which is that, Ben Rhodes apparently helped coin the term the blob with Obama. And the podcast does yeah. occasionally have, I think, it's blob-esque uh, moments. It hasn't entirely escaped the blob. Uh, no, but, well, but, but, <laughs> but, 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 but I recommend the podcast as, uh, yeah, I'm not a regular listener, but I, but I agree with that. And, um, I thought talking to Ben was very interesting. And if you go back and see what we talked about, it was mostly me trying to ask him about, um, you know, you were facing all this pressure, pressure from the same people you and I can't stand, Bob, the neocons, uh, the, the Some lobby, of my best friends are some, neocons. Some of your best friends that, you know. They are. Like, I, I like Eli Lake. Eli just, Lake and so on. Um, I, you know. But anyway, they were facing ahead. so much aggressive pressure from them. But I would say, did you ever feel like you got the same kind of organized pressure from the left to, you know, do things in a, in a, uh, more, peaceful and diplomatic way. And he was like, no, that pressure didn't exist. It would have been nice if it had. And we talked about what I think is probably going to go down in history as the, um, a really seminal moment in the formation of, of a progressive foreign policy movement, which was the Iran deal, which I know you championed and you were close with a lot of the people who did. And it was interesting because that was, that was an Obama Ben Rhodes joint that also, um, brought in like, you know, a, a kind of ad hoc coalition uh, of groups like Win Without War and the Foundation for Middle East Peace, Plowshares, uh, Plowshares, and so on, um, and and certain pundits, um, you know, uh, to to kind of people like Trita Parsi, obviously, 
to kind of create a movement. And I didn't really chronicle that at the time, but I certainly followed and supported it. Um, but, you know, fast forwarding after the Ben Rhodes thing, I profiled Matt Duss, which uh, is one of the pieces I'm proudest of for the nation about a year ago. Um, I, uh, and, and that was the first profile anyone had done of him. There've been a few since they mm-hmm. usually referred back to mine. And, um, I, uh, I also did, um, what was next after that? I did a piece that I've always had a little bit of trouble describing, but it was basically about, um, the, the Yemen war and how it had become the kind of new, uh, focal point for, uh, where left foreign policy was going. And I talked to Bernie himself for that. I talked to Matt. I talked to a lot of other people, I talked to like Chris Murphy and Rokana. Um, and then I followed that up with a, a reported piece about the Quincy Institute, um, which, where I talked to all of the, the co-founders of that, Trita Parsi, Stephen Wertheim, uh, Suzanne DiMaggio, Eli Clifton, and Andrew Basevich. Um, and then recently I did one uh, there was a, the first profile anyone's done of Sasha Baker, Elizabeth Warren's foreign policy advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look at these, you know, and then I have plans I won't get into, but potentially for, you know, the next chapter in this saga. Um, but I, I feel like if you go back and look over all those pieces, all of which I'm proud of, you can, you can see the emergence of, um, a sort of a counter blob. Um, it's yeah, much- oh, absolutely. It's much smaller than the blob. It's also, as you point out, in some ways enmeshed with, I mean, the nature of the blob is that it absorbs people, right? Mm-hmm. So you could come in with um, some very progressive ideas and then you actually work in foreign policy and you get implicated. And Ben Rhodes is a really interesting case in point. I mean, I know that Sarah Lazar at um, in these times has written a scathing piece about Ben Rhodes uh and his complicity in various Obama-era crimes above all the war in Yemen. Um, now, if you talk to Ben Rhodes, he's, you know, she would say cynically rebranded himself. I would maybe say liberated himself uh, as, you know, one of the main champions against the war. And people can get into those debates. I mean, I'm not, Ben Rhodes can defend himself also. Um, and I've aired both sides of that in that Yemen piece in particular. But, um, but I, I think that, you know, he's an illustrative case of someone who I think you could look at him as somebody who, who went into Washington and ended up, uh, you know, selling the Iran deal and, uh, opening relations with Cuba and, um, and, and you could also look and, and, you know, and changing the tenor of our relationship with Israel to some extent or trying to or stopping us from doing strikes on Syria, which everyone else in the administration wanted to do. Uh, or you could look at him as someone who is complicit in the drone wars and um, the weapons we actually did sell to Israel and what we actually did do in Yemen uh, and, and, and any number and, of other and things. Syria. And in Syria. And in Syria. I mean, we, we did, we did funnel weapons in, in, in a way that was uh, yeah, probably not I don't, I don't think Ben is the, the father of that particular strategy, yeah. but yeah, no, it's I totally don't, I don't fair to say was. that. Mm. Yeah, but... but um, but, you know, I think that I, I'm fascinated by him as a figure because I think it's generally fair to say that of Obama's senior foreign policy advisors, 
he had the most untraditional background and he was probably uh, what the, he had an MFA in creative writing or something. Yeah. Well, he also like interned at the Wilson center, but yeah, he was a young comms guy. He was a, a would be novelist. He was not your conventional blobby, which a lot of people hated and resented and saw as a bad thing. I thought it was kind of interesting to have someone with a fresh perspective. And I, I think there are some tangible things that it brought about, however much Trump may have subsequently endangered them. Um, but, uh, you know, so I look at him and then I look at someone like Matt Duss, uh, who also, as people can read into my profile, has a wildly unconventional background for someone in foreign policy and one that, you know, people like me might find relatable, you know, kind of breaking into punditry. And I mean, Christ, he had a blogging head show for years and he could be running U.S. foreign policy. And how, how can I not find that inspirational? Uh, how, how can you not find <laughs> I, I ex- that inspirational? I expect no less of blogging heads alumni. But but he also is, you know, as I'm sure he'd be the first to admit, he, he lives in Washington or in Northern Virginia. He knows a lot of people in that world, like Heather Hurlbert, who also is a blogging heads uh, host, um, you know, he, uh, he talks to Ben Rhodes and Tommy Vitor and is friends with them. And, uh, I, I, he's not, you know, he, he is not actually like a, a bomb throwing anti-imperialist radical. He just seems that way when you compare him to most of the I, I do think, you know, people should appreciate if they haven't paused to appreciate that for Bernie Sanders to be as close as he is to the nomination right now, as with the with the votes uncounted, uh, although there are probably exit polls you and I don't know about that that may tell the story, but just just for him to be given at the, on Super Tuesday like a thirty five percent chance of getting the nomination, and to have said some of the things he said about foreign policy, is is remarkable in a way given the given the recent history of American foreign policy, and I think he really deserves uh, credit. Uh, for some of the candor. I, I think, you know, the, the, the way was in an odd way kind of paved by Trump, who, yeah. uh, you know, one thing Trump demonstrated, and, 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 and this is maybe as disappointing as anything else, but is that, you know, voters don't care very much about foreign policy. I mean, I mean, when he first went after John McCain, people said, oh, he's toast. You can't say that in American politics. Right. <laughs> and it turned out nobody actually cares. And, and, um, and, and, and I would be lying if I, you know, I, I despise Trump and think he's a monster in every sense. And that's no surprise to anyone, but I would be lying if I said, uh, if I didn't acknowledge And I think there are people on the left who would that there have been aspects of the Trump era. They're the least of it. They, they are to be crystal clear, vastly outweighed by the damage he's done, uh, to everything. Uh, you know, kids on the border and everything else to, to the environment. Um, but, but, but there, there is a, a level in which specifically Trump, uh, has, what's the word I'm looking for? Refreshing seems a little off, but like <laughs> he, he's like, I, I get at a basic level why people wanted to see the system get shaken up. And I think yeah. a lot of people can get that if they think about it. I, I get the revulsion at our, Bipartisan elites at, at the swamp, even though to be clear again, and, Trump has only made the swamp. And, and, and these are ever. some of the forces Bernie but would harness. Bernie these are some of the exploit. forces Bernie would harness. And, you know, in a direct way, if you want to talk about his foreign policy and Matt Duss, I mean, Matt Duss was hired by Bernie, uh, like a month or two after the 2016 election. Um, hmm. and, you know, 
Bernie was often criticized in 2016 for not really having much to say about foreign policy, although the few things he did say that he supported Palestinian rights and that he wasn't friends with Henry Kissinger, which he said in debates with Hillary, were wonderful moments. And he's always had that kind of left streak, but it wasn't his focus. He was running on domestic stuff, on inequality and oligarchy and all that. And um, uh, when he... When, when, when Hillary lost and it, you know, and Trump won and, and the whole system was blown open, um, I think Bernie, uh, sorry, I'm distracted by something. Um, I think that Bernie, you know, realized along with a lot of other people that, that the rules were being rewritten and also that he could, you know, actually develop a voice for himself on foreign policy. And there are various things that Duss has done, but I think the single, most notable, um, and is that he, uh, got Bernie talking about the Yemen war, which to, you know, briefly recap the Obama administration very late, uh, in, in his second term. And I think in sort of tandem with the Iran deal to reassure our, our horrific Saudi allies, um, started supporting their bombardment of, uh, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, uh, on the grounds yeah. that they supposedly represent Iranian expansion. And um, it's been a, a major humanitarian catastrophe. It's caused famine and uh, disease, and it's just completely morally indefensible. And um, Bernie uh, started talking about it basically when he hired Matt Duss. And the, the senator who deserves the initial credit for um, opposing it while Obama was still president is actually the more mainstream liberal Chris Murphy of Connecticut, um, but, uh, Murphy, I think, and maybe Rand Paul tried to pass a resolution while Obama was still president, which was focused on not selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. And it was a flop. Um, Bernie came up with a much more clever idea. Uh, and also Obama wasn't president. So Democrats were more receptive to it, but so were a few Republicans like Mike Lee, who co-sponsored it, um, his idea was that we should challenge this on constitutional grounds, that we should reassert, reassert Congress's right to make war mm-hmm. and say that the executive branch starting under Obama and then greatly expanded under Trump um, was basically waging an unconstitutional war by backing the Saudis in Yemen. Um, and he got uh, majorities of both the House and Senate, Ro Khanna being his partner in the House, uh, to support a resolution on those grounds. To Ro, Khanna, invo- Ro Khanna, by the way, is a very impressive guy. He is. It's like, he is. where did he come from? I mean, and Silicon how does Valley. he, and yeah, but how does he get away with his foreign policy stuff in Silicon Valley or, I mean, just anywhere in America where, uh, there's supposed, you know, he's, he's edgy. I think most, you know, he, I think one thing that, um, the advocates of a, of a more progressive foreign policy will make, uh, one case they'll make, someone like Stephen Wertheim, who is, in addition to someone I reported on, and I disclosed this at the time, is also a good friend, and I think he's been on your program, right? Yeah, he has. Yeah, super smart guy, really, really terrific guy, and he um, is the co-founder of, of the Quincy Institute. And one thing someone like him will say is uh, that these ideas are popular. Like, uh, actually, people will say that about Bernie's ideas across the board. A lot of times they're more popular than the Beltway, uh, or the media will let on. But specifically on foreign policy, you know, most veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars think they were a mistake and want, want them to end. And it's, it's really like a zombie consensus that's being challenged right now in Washington. Just people who are completely, uh, blinkered and just don't listen to or care about the public at all. 
Yeah, no, I have no accountability to the public. Yeah. No, and you were right to say that interesting things are happening in foreign policy. I mean, the Quincy Institute's interesting because it has people we might call progressive realists, but it also has conservative realists. It's just yeah. a realist think tank, and and it's the first. Well, I mean, realism and they're, is, and they're they're funded in equal amounts as founding donors by uh, Charles Koch and George Soros, which is yeah. actually unprecedented for them to go in at the ground floor of something in the way that they did. And totally, it, uh, and it really speaks to. Um, like, uh, you know, that, that there, I mean, I am as, as I've, I'm sure already made clear on here, not a big fan of conservatives or Republicans, but I do understand in part from blogging heads that there is a strain of, um, kind of libertarian minded, um, anti-war thought that while I don't know that it, um, well, there's also a Buchananite uh, anti-war yeah. contingent within, uh, conservatism. Uh, represented more, by the American Conservative Magazine now, right? Which I find a little more troubling. Although I, I well, have a it has it has some of the um, uh, you know a little bit of the ethno nationalist flavor that the libertarians, yeah. by and large, don't have. But I mean, honestly, you know, uh, right now I'll kind of take the allies. <laughs> I mean, up to a point, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want completely abhorrent human beings as allies in the foreign policy wars, but. We want um, to end the wars. We, we want to end the wars. Yeah, and, well, and just usher yeah. in – and, well, I mean, the world I'd like to usher in in foreign policy uh, would lead to a place where there would be divergences within this coalition because not all of these conservatives are as enthusiastic about, say, global governance and right. so on uh, and, and, and as respectful as in, of international law as I'd like. So we've been um, – We've been going at this a while. I know you wanted to uh, critically say something critical about blogging heads. But before we do that, (laughs) before we do that, David, I'm going to leave time for it. But I do want to just final thing I I would I would leave with um, on the on the on the note that we we started on the, the, the Bernie bro issue. I would encourage you to. Not that you have to listen to me, but you know, you, you, you did have that, you paid that misty-eyed tribute to blogging heads. I started, you know, I started to tear up a little, you could tell. Uh, I mean, I didn't go as far as, uh, Biden went with Buttigieg and say you remind me of my son, but that's cause I don't have a son, I have two daughters. The, um, the, the, can I, can uh, I just quickly, uh, say on that, that Biden also said, I've never said this to anyone before, and then someone immediately dug up an example <laughs> of him saying it about someone else. Uh, a whole mashup of Biden, uh, t- saying yeah. to randomly selected Americans that they remind him of their son. Yeah, I mean, um, like, this is just one of the many delightful things we'll be dealing with if we do not. He will Biden, be nothing but. if not entertaining, uh, if he's, uh, should he be either president or the Democratic candidate. But on that, on the note of your monarchism, and you're, 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 you know, there, it sounds as if maybe you've learned a little something from the infamous tweet, although there must have been a certain kind of positive reinforcement from being, uh, nationally notorious and part of a Bloomberg ad. But there is a tweet more recent than that that I would just like to raise a question about. Um, it's about, okay, when Buttigieg dropped out, you, say hey great news well first of all somebody reminds you actually tactically it's bad news for bernie you get through that but then you say also i'd like to congratulate the pete Buttigieg of early 2019 on a spirited <laughs> campaign okay next sentence is the pete Buttigieg of mid 2019 to present however is an absolute rat and deserves only contempt and I, I hope you didn't mean that literally and by the way i use literally literally the way people in my generation do not the way millennials do 
and and with that in mind, I hope you didn't mean that literally. That that he deserves only contempt. But, but I mean, there is this kind of binary quality to this, this kind of monarchian quality to this tweet that is, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would I would be dishonest if I didn't say I'm playing to my base a little when I do a tweet like that, <laughs> which is not to say I don't feel it. Um, it's not to say that it's a cynical uh, decision, but I but I'm fully aware that I mean, you're not wrong that, you know, Twitter is tribal and it. uh you know, when I, when I call Peter Rat, which many people have been doing and, um, you know, that I, that I set off a certain reaction with a certain cohort and also obviously piss off some other people. Um, I guess, I but, was but thinking, it can also be tactically, tactically counterproductive for the candidate you are seen as representing. That's the point I would make. Anyway, go sure, ahead. sure. So let me, I want to, I was going to criticize blogging heads a little bit, but what I really want to do is give a kind of, um, deep thought about Twitter. Uh, and, but it, but it's also, it's about Twitter. It's about, um, tribalism. It's about like, uh, polarization versus civility, the things. So, okay, here's, I guess, yeah, let's start with the criticism of blogging heads. Be so, discreet and remember mm-hmm. before you say anything, you had access to inside stuff. information. You remember the NDA you signed, uh, when <laughs> I gave you that generous severance package, right? <laughs> Um, yes, that definitely happened. That's a real thing. Still, still spending that severance package down. I would imagine. No, um, I, I will do my best not to reveal internals, but I don't think I'll have to because, you know, part of blogging heads is that you've been complete transparency. Yeah. Recording everything. You think about everything for, for over a decade now. I do always tell people how incredibly, um, how remarkable it is that, that, uh, you, you've kept this site going, I think through force of will for, well over a decade now. Um, and, and, and how much, you know, technology and how we consume media has changed in that time also. Um, I mean, in a way you anticipated podcasting years before. And yet ironically, and yet ironically, you <laughs> have to made become a, a podcaster with a, with a Joe Rogan sized audience. Yeah. But there is something uh, very pure about what you do. And I respect you. that. I do. And it, and it was a really valuable learning experience in multiple ways for me and exposed me to a lot of viewpoints. But, um, but it also, I, I think I ran up against certain limits. Um, and it's, this is not why I left. I left because I got a better job, but, um, a better uh, job. Yeah. I imagine. But, um, but, uh, but, but I, I think I had a frustration that has probably informed some of my subsequent thinking, which was the, um, the, the focus on these matchups between, um, left and right, um, between the two sides. That's hardly all we do, but, but no, no, but it, sure. I'll take, I'll take your point. It's what it, we were best known for early on. And it was something that you were, okay, I guess I'm uh, giving away internals a little bit here, but it was something that you were often pushing for more of. Uh, uh and, um, and, and, and I, uh, and it was awkward because I think everyone who worked there was some stripe of left of center, uh, you know, uh, from a bit left of center to wherever I am, but, um, you know, Democrats generally, uh, and that was no secret, but it, the problem I found was, um, the pool, you know, you also had, I think, uh, and have some intellectual standards for who, who would come on. I mean, you wanted smart people. You wanted people who would make intellectually honest arguments. And as, uh, you know, I'm hardly the only person to, to ever argue this, but like, there is just not as large a pool of intellectually serious people on the right. Moreover, um, they are heavily white and male. 
um, which also can, affected can, can, the can, demographics. Can I just say on, yeah. on the on the on the claim that there aren't as many intellectually what serious, honest, whatever you said, people on the right. I just again in my role as your surrogate father, um, <laughs> I I would just encourage you to. Um, uh, just whenever you think something like that, ask yourself, because it is so obviously the the kind of thing that could result from the kinds of, you know, s- s- egocentric cognitive biases we all have, to just ask yourself if maybe, you, you know, your your vision is a little blurred when you well, think but, something but, like but that. But to be honest, I used to, I used to be more open to that kind of thinking. I mean, it's, it's actually been something I've kind of transitioned away from. I mean, I was always liberal and I always thought the Republicans were horrible, but I used to be, I think, more generous in my interest in conservative thinking. And there's still little corners of it. Actually, one thing I'm going to do but, a but, plug for, uh, a quick plug for, it's not mine, but, um, a really good podcast that you should listen to and that other people should listen to is the Know Your Enemies podcast or Know Your Enemy podcast by my aforementioned friend Sam Adler Bell and by Matt. Is he the one who interviews people who are actually his enemies or something? What is no it? most mostly he doesn't, although he just did the first one of that, which was with mm-hmm. Ross Douthat, who I think we can agree is one of the handful of intellectually serious conservative he is, yes, he is, writers. Well, and, I wouldn't say handful necessarily, but he is. He, I would say, in a certain sense, uh-huh. he's the most uh, cerebral columnist for the Times. Yeah, no, I would too. Or, well, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to be mean. To, uh, well, to my my having, instance, you know, but, if you if you uh, wonder why I haven't you know. gone farther in life, it's not easy to insult like eleven influential people with one short <laughs> sentence. But I just did that, didn't I? Look, look, Bob. In some ways, you modeled the behavior that I now espouse on my platform. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no. But what I was going to say is that. Um, but but oftentimes, and I will strenuously avoid naming any names here, but oftentimes I felt like not only were we sometimes making allowances for people who I, I, I didn't think had very interesting things to say on the right, but we were also missing out on opportunities to create um, very fruitful discussions, not necessarily debates, although sometimes debates, but very fruitful discussions among smart, intellectually honest people who took some baseline assumptions about the world uh, as a given. Um, because we, so, we had a lot of intra-ideological oh, discussion me, over the years, me, certainly. Let me make very clear, you have, and I still, to this day, sometimes listen to Blogging Head's discussions. Um, you've had some brilliant, wonderful people on the show throughout its, on, on the website throughout its entire run. And, um, and, and, you know, the advantage of the Blogging Heads format was always that you, you didn't really edit it. You just kind of broke it up into segments and you could really hear people think at length, which in many ways does anticipate where podcasting eventually went. Um, so, well, uh, podca- a lot of podcasts are highly podcasts. produced. It did anticipate yeah. Joe Rogan. I mean, that's his, sure. he took that but for that matter, I mean, they're totally different in their ideological tenor and stuff. But, you know, something like Chapo Trap House, like, uh, is basically an unedited free-for-all. Um, but much and, more what you're recommending. I mean, like-minded people. And, of course, it's sure. it's it's as much political comedy as, as, as it is, political It is. It is. And discussion. we don't have to get into them at great length. But, um, but, but I'll say that um, I found, first of all, that I think – knowing what you believe while it can lead to blinkered fanaticism. And I try to be open-minded. And I mean, I I hope for instance, we've had a very civil discussion here where we've civilly disagreed. So it's not like I can't do that. It's not like I'm totally closed off to, to criticism or to, you know, 
civilly, uh, civilly arguing my point. Um, it's not that I can't do that, but I do feel that structuring things, uh, as, as you sometimes, but certainly not always have as, um, but also as, you know, cable news does all the time as, as a kind of like, here's a right wing voice and here's, here's a left wing voice. And they're going to argue, um, can actually produce a lot of the time intensely boring, repetitive and stupid debates because it's like, we get it. Like one of you thinks government should be bigger and one of you thinks it should be smaller. One of you thinks that global warming is an urgent crisis and one of you doesn't believe it's real or doesn't believe it's urgent, you know, et cetera, et cetera. One of you believes this set of facts on guns and one of you believes this set of NRA approved talking points on guns. Uh, and we can go down the list. Well, now, I, I tried to find mm-hmm. people who don't just do talking points. But, sure. But, and and, you but do, I don't, you don't always succeed. And, and well, and when you do that, you often end up, I think, with an interesting mix of idiosyncratic paleocons, libertarians, uh, you know, people who aren't necessarily reflective of Republican establishment thinking, but, um, but, but have a conservative streak in their thinking. And there are some interesting thinkers in that world. Um, you know, Catholic traditionalists who might have interesting things to say, even if I might find some of their views abhorrent. Um, oh yeah. And the know your enemy podcast, by the way, the basic idea is that they study conservative intellectuals. They might do an episode about William F. Buckley mm-hmm. or the episode I did with them was all about Norman Podhoritz. But oh, they, I actually did hear that. That was good. Yeah. Thank so, you. so I, I, I did, I did listen to that. Yeah. So, you know, we know all, a lot about Norman Podhoritz. <laughs> well, I read, I read making it and, uh, and so did they and we all enjoyed it. Um, so I actually think that is a model of the discourse I like best more than some of my, you know, louder Twitter behavior. I'd sometimes try to do that kind of discourse on Twitter too when I'm in a calmer mood. Um, but, but that or what we're doing now or what I write, you know, is written from a point of view, which is a broadly kind of democratic socialist point of view. It thinks that certain things are good, like that everyone should have health care, um, and certain things are bad, like um, neo-Nazism, um, you know, uh, or tax cuts for the rich or whatever. Um, it, it, it makes those assumptions, and I could argue out at length why I think those things are true, but I have found, as I've gotten older, actually, that those arguments are less provocative, less intellectually stimulating, and less uh, politically galvanizing than um, intra-left debates or um, or just interviews with people who know what they're talking about and have a and, and have a solid framework for engaging with the world. Yeah, but I do think the Trump era has brought a whole new kind of argument for, well, knowing your enemy and, and engaging. I just think people, so many people in the resistance, I mean, I want to say two things here. So many people in the resistance just kind of don't seem to understand ways in which, as I've already suggested, things they do and say actually help Trump. That's because they don't understand the nature of Trump's uh, support and and really the diversity of it, different kinds of people who support him. But because they have caricatured the enemy, because they think all of his uh, supporters just flat out racist and that's the end of the story. And um, so I think there's a there's now a new kind of argument for kind of uh, crossing ideological bounds um the uh but the other thing i want to say is that the other thing the resistance has shown me is you know you you earlier uh suggested that well there's much more of a dearth of intellectual seriousness and honesty on the right than on the left i have just been stunned by how many even prominent people in the resistance either are 
undergoing like major uh, lapses <laughs> of logic and analysis or are just pretending to for purpose of, of saying the kinds of things that get them followers. And I don't think you do that, the latter. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, but some, for some of them, I think it, it is calculated. Uh, and, and for some of them, maybe it becomes an addiction, but I've just seen, uh, it's just well, been, well, actually, it's just me... been an, an ex- a nonstop exhibit of cognitive biases at play on the left. And I don't mean, I don't, I, I, I do it too. I do it too. But I mean, the magnitude and consistency of it has kind of blown my mind. Well, you know, it's interesting that you've said this about the resistance because at least in, in the circles I travel in, uh, and certainly on Twitter, um, the left and the resistance are actually very distinct. Um, oh, parts sure. Of the political in, in fact, look, some of the great skeptics of the re- part of the resistance mindset I'm talking about are on the left. Yes. Uh, so, to the uh, left of the average resistor. Right. So I'll say, since I find that the mainstream media um, screws this up a lot and for the benefit of whatever viewers or listeners here are confused about this, um, to my mind, left and liberal are distinct things, and liberal has much heavier, though by no means sole overlap with what calls itself the resistance. Uh, the mm-hmm. resistance also seems to include some never-Trumpers and centrists and right. so on. But, you know, the resistance, to my mind, um, you know, when that term first emerged in the immediate wake of Trump's win, I didn't hate it. Um, I understood it was a reference to the French Revolution. It was a reference to Star Wars. Uh, not the French Revolution, the uh, Vichy France. Although that's an inauspicious comparison since the French resistance has been heavily exaggerated. Um, and, but never mind that. Um, the, also, you I, could lose your job for making a World War II reference like that in media. <laughs> well, depends which. I don't think that's why Chris Matthews lost his job. I think it was uh, for It's not the only stuff. reason. But, I just, I just yeah. thought, well, just quick footnote. I didn't think it was as egregious as Chuck Todd, uh, quoting without evident disapproval, somebody calling, uh, Sanders supporters brown shirts. Was that it? He was talking about Sanders supporters? Something anyway, like that. I that, mean, that, I, I, thought I that will was, say having, having watched Chuck Todd a bit in this primary cycle, uh, he is really dreadful, really one of the worst, uh, I don't, I don't pay that much heads, attention. I just but, thought that was a, a more egregious crime. Of course, yeah, Matthews, you're right. There's a whole, there's a whole lengthy indictment, uh, yeah. that came, that ultimately caught up with him. Sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, just to say the resistance, uh, it, it quickly came to seem like something really unappealing. Um, not to say I don't have friends who I, or, or people I'm friendly with or respect who, who still probably use that label. But, but overall, I would say the, the cohort I, I identify with, um, kind of jeers at the resistance and sees itself as the left. Now, I would say the left, although there are many strains of it, the, the mainstream of the left is generally people who are for Bernie right now, uh, and who, um, you know, are anti-war and, uh, anti-corporate power. And they, they probably also, share a lot of the identitarian um you know they 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 are pro gay rights and feminist and and pro black yeah, lives but, matter but, and so on but, but there is but there is some them, skepticism of identity yeah, politics on the on the left left many many of the, so there there are some strains of it that are openly skeptical of the entire idea of identity politics i don't like that strain and have criticized it and have sparred mm-hmm. with it but i do think there is a wider um discomfort with identity with a certain kind of identity politics that no one really knows how to articulate without setting off uh unproductive fights in the left but that the 
you know, the way that the resistance might cynically weaponize it. And in a way, if we go back to my lists tweet that you cited earlier and you break down what I was saying in it, you can kind of see me making that exact critique the way I think it should be made. Wow, that's a pretty subtle reading of that tweet. You'll have to elaborate. It's a subtle reading of the tweet. But what did I say in the tweet? I said, Pete Libs you know, probably resistance libs who, um, you know, flirting with Bloomberg, who say they care about racism and, mm-hmm. and sexual harassment when really they only care about money and power. So what am I saying there? I'm saying, okay, you all go on TV and you, and you say that the Bernie bros are a bunch of misogynist white boys who, you know, uh, are, are total assholes and, um, are anti-identity politics. They're so not woke like us, but then, you know, it turns out Bernie has a very diverse coalition in all respects, by race, by gender, by everything. And, and his um, his own platform and record is as woke as you can get on that stuff, even if it's not necessarily the main thing he likes to talk about. Um, it is intersectional, whereas the kind of people who were saying that are willing to work for a guy who is, all, you know, I don't want to get myself in legal trouble here, but let's say has been sued many times for sexual harassment and um, who, you know, for 12 years defended the, in retrospect, unconstitutional and racist stop and frisk program um, and has said many racist and racially insensitive things too. Um, and so what bothers me is not wokeness or identity politics per se. I don't think we can build... Uh, a left uh, that's not intersectional and isn't, you know, uh, and doesn't respect everyone and, and fight for everyone's rights in very specific ways. I believe in all of that. What pisses me off is people who weaponize that kind of rhetoric to attack the left and then turn around and take money from people who are, um, and, and support people who are total monsters by their own standards. It's the, it's the cynical weaponization of wokeness and identity politics that gives them a bad name. When the reality is they are a noble tradition the left stands with and should defend. Well, I'm um, against, I'm against cynical weaponization of all kinds, but I will say that is a subtle reading of your tweet. And so my, my, <laughs> my, my, my final bit of paternal advice would be, uh, never attribute too much subtlety to your audience. Um, well, you know, <laughs> there's something to that, but I, you know, I'll, here's my last thought about Twitter. Um, Twitter is a very mixed bag. I've had some bad days on it. I've had some bad days on it recently. Um, I've never deleted my account or logged Good. off for any length of time, but, um, but I, you know, I, I understand why people do. Um, and I particularly understand and should acknowledge in the spirit of intersectionalism that it is harder if you're a woman, it's harder if you're a person of color, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's no, it's no treat if you're, uh, if you're Jewish either, uh, as I am. Uh, you know, sometimes people will tweet ovens or anti-Semitic caricatures at you, and that's, that's no fun either. Um, but, uh, but I've, I've gotten it from, from, uh, every faction. You know, I've been attacked by neocons, libertarians, centrists, mainstream liberals, Hillary people, uh, the far left, sometimes my own friends and cohort. And it, you know, you, you, you have to develop a a thick skin. It can be, it can be really difficult, but it has also, um, broken you don't have open. to, <laughs> you could just tweeting the thing, you could tweeting the things that lead to massive attacks being launched at you. you but, well, if you're going to speak, no, frankly, but I take your point. I mean, you're going to, you're going to take incoming. If you say anything of significance at all, that's true. And, and of course, you know, I had to do things to get to that platform in the first place to that level of prominence in the first place, which I should still keep in perspective. You know, I'm not, I'm not like, 
famous, but media seems to know who I am. In ge- but politics and media seem to know who I am. But but I also think about who is my audience on Twitter because there's been a, a robust debate recently, and there was a, I thought a very good um, piece in the Times by Charlie Warzel the other week about this. Um, uh, there's been a robust debate about is Twitter real life or not. Um, and people will at various times say Twitter isn't real life. And then sometimes they'll joke that it is. I have a very nuanced take on this, but I, I, I think, okay, which, which I think I share with Charlie Warzel, which is, first of all, obviously Twitter is real life. It's real. It exists. There are real live people on it. It's as real as a phone conversation or a Skype conversation or an exchange of letters or a New York Times article. You know, people are writing, people are reading, people are communicating. It's real. It would be extremely stupid to say it wasn't. And, you know, and people who obsess over cancel culture know full well that, like, lives get destroyed on Twitter uh, or profoundly altered anyway. Reputations get destroyed. So it's real. At the same time, the sense in which it's not real life is that um, – the political discourse you see on Twitter is not representative of the wider electorate. It's not, you know, like, uh, you, you go on Twitter and you'd find hardly anyone who seems to actually like Joe Biden. And then it turns out lots of people are voting for Joe Biden. So clearly, you know, it's not an accurate representation of the electorate. So what is Twitter? And I would argue that what Twitter is, is the most radically open insider platform and the most radically inclusive insider platform ever created in human history. Um, it is, it is for the broadest definition of insiders that has ever existed. Um, there are not everyone who uses Twitter is an insider. I mean, there are hundreds of millions mm-hmm. of people on it, but there are probably, and for any major field, whether it's politics, entertainment, uh, you know, uh, tech, whatever, um, there are probably tens, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of people who I would say are in the conversation. You're one, I'm one, most people who go on blogging heads are one. Um, you know, to, to varying degrees, and it's hard to get a precise definition. It's not just if you have a blue check. Well, it has made, it has made the bounds surrounding the elite and the elite conversation more porous, vastly uh, more less, porous. you know, in, more, in, more permeable. Now, in that regard, it, it's it, it's another it's it's just another step in in uh, where the internet has, in some ways, taken us broadly. I mean, blogging represented blogging gave uncredentialed uh, yes. people with with who who had well articulated opinions an entree they would not have had in the old uh, you know in the old media system. Uh, but, but at the same time, I, I, I would say that there tends to be uh, these periods of decentralization, uh, tend to be followed by, by centralization. It's like there were, there for a while, there were a lot of little blogs and, yeah. and, and actually you're seeing this happening in podcasting now. The, the age of podcasting is, is pretty much ending. The age of classic podcasting is ending. More and more, it's dominated by well-financed, highly produced, um, podcasts on major platforms. And, you know, the same thing happened with blogs. So I don't know where Twitter is well, heading, I mean, Twitter, but there's, there's no doubt that, that this has happened. It's, in a way, this is uh, why Trump is president. In general, elite, you know, elite bastions of all kind are more readily stormed now. Yeah, I, they are. And, of course, it's a disaster that Trump is president, but it's also the reason that a Sanders presidency would be possible, which obviously I see as a good thing. Um it's the reason that a lot of things are possible that weren't before. But but I'm struck that a lot of the elite media discourse around Twitter, a lot of um, a lot of Twitter's most vociferous critics 
are, um, you know, sinecured cable news hosts or New York Times columnists or other people who have had oh, sure. success in older forms of media um, and make real money and have sort of secure careers in that world for whom Twitter is all downside because while they might get on it, they might get addicted to it, they, they see why they need to be on it, what they quickly discover is that it's a platform that, you know, before there was the elite world they traveled in, the you know, the tiny, tiny world of, of paid elite media and mm-hmm. uh and and their friends and family and stuff. And then there were the masses who just had to passively consume whatever they said and they would get no real pushback from them. But because of Twitter and the blogosphere was a kind of first step in this direction, but it's been utterly turbocharged by Twitter. Um because of Twitter, uh they now have their mentions flooded every time they say something that's off to any demographic. Um, and this has been traumatic for a lot of them, mm-hmm. but I look at it in a positive way, which is a lot of careers, a lot of really impressive and exciting careers have been launched via that. Um, it has allowed people from historically underrepresented groups, which have never had remotely that kind of access, um, to power to make their voices heard in powerful ways. Um, you know, and it uh, it has shaken up the conversation and shaken up a lot of conventional wisdom. And the truth is, while there are a lot of bleeding idiots on Twitter, and I I deal with the ones I think are all the time, you know, overall, uh, compared to Facebook, for instance, which has a vastly larger um, user base. Well, it's less of an elite. Facebook it's more is of a grassroots thing. Yeah, I mean, Facebook, often- Facebook is designed to be the entire planet's high school yeah. reunion. It's yeah. designed to keep you in touch with you, the normal person in touch with all the normal people you've ever known. Twitter is not really effective for being used that way because most people will go on Twitter. They'll get 20 followers that they'll say things that will just be shouted into the abyss. And they'll mostly end up using it to, to read a relatively right. small group of people. And that, but although it's still way larger than the traditional elite was by orders of magnitude, but it's still, a relatively small group of people. And so like that small group of people, um, you know, it's a, it's a kind of way to bootstrap your way into thought, thought leadership. Um, and there are various cynical and gross ways to do it. But overall, I would say the average, the average Twitter account with a notable following and that's in the conversation, these are actually pretty smart people on average. And they're pretty like, high, oh, yeah, they're, there's, hi, yeah, yeah. they're highly informed across, across the political spectrum. Sure, there's, no, there's highly, a ton of, there's a ton highly of informed, ton highly smart stuff on Twitter. People. I would. And you know, it's, which, uh, is, which is all to say that when I'm on Twitter okay. and I'm, and I'm getting my message, whatever it is out there, something I've, be, I've become cognizant of is that there are a lot of regular people probably seeing what I'm saying, but mm-hmm. for the most part, I am addressing the elite. I'm addressing the elite in, uh, you know, in, in very broadly defined. I'm addressing insiders across the spectrum. Um, I'm getting into their heads. They're getting into mine. And there's, you know, a kind of a Twitter hoi polloi that numbers in the hundreds of thousands or the millions that's watching and weighing in and commenting, but is still a minuscule sliver of the actual electorate in the country um, and probably a highly unrepresentative sliver. So, you know, Notwithstanding that it went in a Bloomberg ad, like how many people see my my obnoxious tweets? It's in the grand scheme of things, yeah. yeah but but it's small. But but, but it's but, like but the people it, who yeah, do and see you, it and are you know very what influential. Else? And and it's well, and, right. And okay, so, it, so it's not nothing. And, and no, I so mean, it's, in, it's, in general, it's a kind in of life. power. It's a kind of power. But I'm just saying, like like 
the average voter doesn't know what a Bernie bro is and isn't mad at Bernie bros and hasn't been harassed on Twitter by Bernie bros, whether they're voting for Bernie or not. You know, the people who okay, but actually let me just say one thing. We should we should draw this to yeah, a close pretty soon. We've been doing it a while, but I would say that. Um, I mean, first of all, everything you say is true. You're just one person. You're just one Bernie bro. If you accept that label, um, and uh, you know, uh, I, I would say two things. You know, if we all spent all of our time accurately assessing our influence, we'd never do anything or or, or never take certain kinds of responsibilities seriously. Uh, my vote has never made the difference in an election. And yet, if everyone stayed at home because of because the same is true of them, democracy would fall apart. And and moreover, le- let me say, yeah, but, but don't but don't sell yourself short, Bob, because the reality is you're you're not just an average. Well, voter. OK, you're, fine. But you're, but, a be- but you're you're a best selling author with a large Twitter okay, following so I, and okay. this platform, which my, my means and, and the people who, who read your books <laughs> and follow your presence. No, I'm, I'm actually dead serious here are important and influential people as as they are. Okay. In my case, and and that okay, so so, so then it does that, matter. It, then it does matter whether people perceive you as an asshole, Bernie bro. And let me just see one specific example, by the way. And again, this wasn't just you that was being referred to, but the Bernie bro issue. You know, if you ask, if you ask, why did Joe Biden do so well in South Carolina that the establishment that that Klobuchar and Buttigieg threw in the towel and decided now was the time to make common cause with him and the whole establishment rallied around him. I think uh, a couple of things happened. One, he got that, what is it, Tom Clyburn uh, endorsement in South Carolina, but also he had a pretty good... Jim Clyburn. He had a pretty good debate, the debate right before then, and Bernie had a tough debate because everyone's ganging up on him and although he's... He, he's some, you know, he could have been more agile maybe, but for whatever reason, it was a slightly tough night for him. And one of two or three themes they all ganged up on was the Bernie bro thing. It was like they, they several different people insist, and he'd deny it. And then somebody else would say, no, your followers are mean. So, yeah, I mean, these well, things have consequence. Look, I, of course they do because Twitter is in fact real life. And I, I take your point. Uh, I don't think that's the main, I think if it weren't Bernie bros, it would be something else. I mean, the bottom line is they don't want a socialist and the party is consolidating in a way that they would have in an earlier era. But I would also argue like, look, Bernie will find out in a few hours how he did tonight. Um, But the fact that he's even gotten this far, the fact that it's even remotely conceivable um, has been powered by a lot of aggressive online energy um, and, you know, that, that has radicalized a lot of people my age and younger and in many cases gotten them to actually go out and organize phone bank and do things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and, you know, like I think that there are dark sides to that. I mean, look, I've been, I have been harassed by Bernie bros. If you want to look at it that way, like people who are hardcore for Bernie have told me that I'm a piece of shit. And, and I've, 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 but I've also been harassed across the spectrum, which is why I find the whole line of attack very disingenuous and, and silly because I, I can tell you from personal experience, every single political candidate and every single political cause has some followers who are just oh, vicious sure. assholes. Absolutely. And but, the Bernie bros get singled out for What it. I would say to all and, of them, Bernie mm-hmm. bros or Warren whatever's... Well, the worst I, I would, are actually what are called the K-Hive, the Kamala Harris, uh, Harris followers. Who, okay, well, I would say to all of them, nuts. I would say to all of them, given my reading of the tactical dynamics 
don't do a disservice to your candidate by by making it easy uh, for people to depict their followers as assholes. But um, so we yeah, should go. We should enough. go. Say fair say enough. a final thing. Um, I really enjoyed this. We did go for an hour and forty minutes, which is <laughs> yeah. Crazy, this is we're, but... we're reaching Joe Rogan territory. Hmm. One no, of the warning um, signs. Honestly, Bob, I think um, in the years I've known you now, I think this is actually the first time we've ever done one together, an, the two of an us. An actual dialogue. That's probably true. Yeah. I mean, I've edited many that you hosted. I hosted many. I've done some with Ari. When we say edited, by the way, we don't mean editing the video. We mean yeah. just breaking up the thing into subtitleable right. topics. But, but I, um. I've, I've done that. and um, But this is, I think, the first – this is – for all that you are, it was the first. Well, this we made up, the longest conversation we we've ma- ever had. We, made, we made up made for lost civilly. time. Yeah, yeah with this the was fun. I would, I would go on again sometime. Uh, and um, you know, uh, <laughs> see you shaking. Well, if your you head. behave yourself, if I behave myself. That's possible. Although I don't know, I got on here by not behaving myself. Y- yeah, Bob, but so but, but we don't do reruns. There will have to be a new phase in your spiritual development. Uh, well, we'll see. But, um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I, I had a great time and I, and I, I do take your criticisms, um, seriously. Good. And I take yours seriously. Thank you. Bob. Uh, seriously, but not literally, literally or whatever it is. Whatever. Or it is. literally, but no, literally, <laughs> I take them literally, but not yeah. seriously. Let's go find um, but, out what uh, happened on Super Tuesday. Yeah, let's, let's do that. Or, or, and let's say, as we say, as we say on Twitter, now to take a giant sip of coffee and check the, uh, the exit polls. Out we of should the also States. say, as on Twitter, you can be found at David Cleon, K-L-I-O-N, and I can be found at Robert Ryder, W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R. Right. And that's a fitting way to end. Thank you, David. Thanks, Bob.